welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy from some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Katerina Atkins, Program Coordinator at OMFIF Sustainable Policy Institute, and today we will be discussing the topic of investment needs for energy transition and scaling clean energy funding. I'm delighted to be joined today by Diala Havila, Program Officer at the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA. Diala has been working in the Knowledge Policy and Finance Center at IRENA for over 10 years. During this time, she has managed, coordinated, and co-authored reports related to renewable energy policies and benefits. And based on the findings of the reports, she provides on-the-ground support to countries in the form of technical assistance and capacity building. Welcome to our podcast, Diala, and thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Katrina. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Diala. Just let's jump into our first question and to start our discussion, let's gain a clear understanding of what energy transition investment means in today's world and why there is an urgent need to scale clean energy funding. Yes, so this is a very urgent uh, question and the world has to invest in more energy transition related solutions in order to keep climate change within 1.5 degrees by the end of 2050. Uh, So at IRENA, we have the World Energy Transitions Outlook, which provides a scenario to achieving these climate goals. And then within it, we propose energy transition-related solutions or pathways. Those include renewable energy, of course, energy efficiency, electrification of transport and end uses, and then renewable electricity, as we mentioned, renewables for direct heating and cooling and transport. So there are other also technologies like carbon removal from the atmosphere. Also, there's some uh, percentage of nuclear power that would remain by 2050. So preparing for those investments, including also power grids and flexibility in the power system, would require a cumulative investment of $150 trillion between 2023 and 2050. On a yearly basis, that would mean around $5.3 trillion per year. So from those $5.3 trillion a year, around 10%, 10 10 to 15% are almost conventional energy sources, which means that energy transition-related investments need to go to from $1.3 trillion Uh, last year, which was a record-breaking year. So we need to go up from 1.3 trillion in energy transition-related investments to more than 4.2 a year. So we're talking about almost quadrupling investments in these technologies. Thank you for providing this insightful overview. And it's clear that uh, energy transition investments play pivotal role in today's world. And as you mentioned, the report the World Energy Transition Outlook, and this number, 103 trillion US dollars between 2023 and 2050. I was just wondering how, you mentioned this already about how this compares to the current investments. So this is the financing gap. How can we mobilize the necessary capital to meet the climate objectives? It's a, it's a big effort. Uh, it's a big effort that requires the participation of all players. 
So, so far, uh, when it comes to energy transition investments and in particular renewable energy investments. So when we look at the 1.3 trillion of last year in the energy transition, the majority of these investments are in renewable energy and energy efficiency. Uh, the other technologies are rather new, like green hydrogen or electric transport is not as widely deployed yet, although electric transport has been increasing uh, at a very high speed. So when it comes to those, uh, those investments, we see that they are mostly coming from the private sector. So private investments have been very important in driving this growth, uh, particularly in the renewable energy sector where private investments have accounted for uh, around two thirds of investments in the past uh, decade or more. So, but going forward in order to achieve these huge investments, we will have to rely, we will need all hands on deck. We will have to rely on private and also public investments. A lot of these investments will come from the public sector, and we will talk about this a bit later in the form of uh, international collaboration, cooperation, and support that is needed to flow from the global north to the global south. It's very interesting what you mentioned about the distribution of uh, private and public uh, investments and uh, the investments in electric transport. But I wanted to return to something that you've mentioned before. So you said 40% of planned investments would remain aimed at fossil fuels. I guess 60% will be directed to uh, transition technologies, as you mentioned. So how can we balance it? It, the... is not, it is not 40 in fossil fuels. It's between 10 and 15. Ah, 10 and 15. So, yeah. so there is there is investments in infrastructure like flexibility and grids. And, and then the remaining is in renewable energy and in energy efficiency and electrification. I see, but still we have these planned investments to remain aimed at fossil fuels. So from your point of view, how can we still balance this need for continued fossil fuel investment with the imperative to reach climate objectives? So investments in, in fossil fuels are going to continue to be needed. So those are investments that will go in, in fuels because power plants are not going to shut down tomorrow. We're not going to uh, park the cars and the planes tomorrow. So we will continue uh, using uh, those assets the way we've been using them until we transition slowly, right? So, and and these are the investments that will go into using these modes of, of, uh, of conventional energy. And also uh, in, in refurbishing or maintaining existing assets until their retirement. So we will still need a minimum number of investments in those in, 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 in our conventional energy sector until we can slowly phase out. Uh, of course, with the intention of reducing stranded assets. So according to our energy scenario, we need to phase out around a trillion dollars per year in fossil fuels uh, investments. So now we know that a lot of investments, that, and this relates to the question that you asked me before, where is this money going to come from? A lot of this money already exists and it goes towards fossil fuel uh, infrastructure. So slowly we need to transition these investments from the fossil fuel sector to the renewable energy and other en energy transition related solutions. So there's a repurposing of around $1 trillion a year that used to go to fossil fuels that are now supposed to go to renewables. Yes, of course. And the 
yes, the risk of stranded assets is high and the reducing of stranded assets is, of course, a complex challenge, but uh, needs to be addressed. One more thing that I wanted to discuss is the geographical concentration of these investments. From the report, the investments in energy transition are concentrated in few countries and regions, and I guess this is the US, China, Europe. So why there is such a situation, and more importantly, how can we ensure a more equitable and global distribution of these investments? Yes, I think this is the most important question. Of course, one question is how do we increase these investments levels that are needed, and these will require more country engagement, uh, political uh, commitments, and more policies. And then the other question is how do we distribute them more equitably? So as you mentioned, those markets, the US, Europe, and China have been attracting most of the investments. And if you remember just a bit a while ago, a few minutes ago, we spoke about the investments, particularly in renewable energy, being mainly uh, coming from the private sector. So at some point, there was an agreement that the investments needed are high and the public sector alone cannot provide all these investments the way that the governments and the public sector before provided the infrastructure needed for our current energy system. So the current energy system built on fossil fuels was mainly financed by the public sector. Today that we need to transition everything, it was we, we realized that the public sector does not is not able on its own to achieve or to provide all these investments. So the consensus was that most of these investments would come from the private investors. Now, private investors, they usually go where private capital normally goes, where it is safe to make investments. And the safety to make investments is defined on a number of, of, of levels, right? One of them is to have the right policy, legal uh, framework. And the other one is related to the country risks, to the currency exchange risks, to, related to the whole. So there's many risks that are at play. And there's also the return on investments. So countries where it is attractive to make private investments have been able to attract all those investments, whether it is because they have set the right policy or whether they have been able to create a right environment, which means that countries where we are not able to create the safe and stable environment for private capital, money did not flow. And if it did flow, it flows at a high, uh, at a high uh, uh, cost of capital because the higher the risk, the higher the cost of capital, which means the higher the cost of deployment. So we ended up in a situation where the lowest income populations would pay the most for this renewable energy that is very um, important for meeting basic human needs and for socioeconomic development as well. So in order for us to break from the cycle, we need to channel some public investments. And these public investments, we will talk about them later, can be used to create a more stable or more attractive environment to start channeling more private capital towards these countries. And in some extreme cases where private capital will still not flow due to maybe extreme currency exchange risks or extreme political risks or other risks that uh, we are not able to overcome using these instruments. In these cases, we will have to rely on purely public investments and we have to treat renewable energy projects 
as a basic human right or need that is really needed in order to achieve sustainable development goals by 2030, hopefully. Thank you for these insights. And as we started to discuss risks, I was thinking that maybe we could jump into this question around rethinking the definition of risk in energy uh, asset investments. What do you think about including environmental and social risks uh, alongside financial returns uh, in energy asset investments? Absolutely. This is very important. Uh, as, as, as we were saying now, it is not the private sector's job to make sure that all the people on the planet have access to clean energy, clean cooking and electricity, right? And if they want to venture there, they are venturing at high cost because they're taking high risks. Sometimes they don't have the demand for their investments, demand for their electricity. Sometimes people cannot pay for these uh, for this electricity. We saw this case at COVID when a lot of people could not pay for the basic electricity that they have access to. So in this sense, this is why the way we perceive uh, the energy transition has to change. And renewable energy as a sector, the, the perception of it as a money-making sector has to change. Okay, in some cases this works and it has worked and it will continue to work and it's very good to, to, to rely on the private sector as a money-making with returns of investment as a money-making sector, it's sustainable and it can continue and this is great. But as I mentioned, there are so many areas, we still have around 650 million people with no access to electricity. We still have more than 1 billion people who cook without access to clean cooking. So those people, we have failed them for so long and we cannot continue failing them and we cannot perceive an energy transition that will leave them behind. So as we talk about an energy transition, it is not that the whole world will transition from fossil fuels to renewables. There's a big chunk of the population that is transitioning from nothing to renewables. And those people, we cannot continue failing them. And this is why this, this the way we look at investments from the point of view of a money-making investment, that is the role of the private sector, we, we look at the risks and we have defined the risks as this investment not generating enough profits for the investors. So as I mentioned, this perception works in so many contexts, but in so many contexts, this does not work. And in so many contexts, the, the perception of risk should be broader than that. It's not only about the risk of this investment not returning money for the investors. It's about the risk of leaving these people behind. It's of leaving these people chained or stuck in their poverty uh, cycle because the energy is essential for them to break from the cycle for productive uses, for healthcare, for education. So this huge risk of not leaving people behind needs to be accounted for. And once you start accounting for this risk, your probably uh, your your vision of what projects are feasible or not changes, right? And then even if you're talking about the general context, if you if you also account for the environmental risks, your perception or your definition of whether a project is feasible or not also changes. So when you when you change your equation, when it is no longer about only one variable, which is or one objective, which is maximizing profit for the investor, when you also include uh, the reducing the risks of leaving people behind or reducing the risks of the planet continuing 
uh, on its current environmental and climate trajectory. And when you include the risk of continued social uh, inequity and equality, then your perception of what is a good investment will change. But as I mentioned, this perception is not only the role of the private sector. Here, governments need to, need, to, need to work together and the international community needs to come together to ensure that these risks are mitigated. Thank you. And I agree completely that a more holistic approach to in energy asset investments uh, is needed uh, on a global scale. And we will delve in a couple of minutes into what you said, not failing uh, the developing world and the flow of money from the global north to the global south. But before going there, I wanted to ask about key financing instruments and sources of funding. So according to the report, grants and low-cost project debt accounted for only 1% of total renewable finance in 2020. So what are then the key financing instruments here? So what we have seen is that most of the investments made uh, were made uh, using just commercial loans, basically. So loans at rates, uh, so as I mentioned, when those loans go to high-risk environments, the rate of borrowing or the cost of capital has increased. So we need to see more of these instruments that are made for such uh, contexts where the high where the risks are high, but still the cost of capital is not high, right? And these are the concessional loans that we are looking at. So we are calling for more concessional loans at favorable loan periods uh, that can help the lowest income populations invest in this capital intensive technologies in order to improve energy access, reliability and affordability. So the, 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 lowest, the lower the rates uh, or the cost of capital using concessional loans, uh, the lower the price of electricity or energy that the consumers would have to pay for. Uh, we're also calling for grants in, in places where investments uh, are very high, like, highly unlikely uh, to be made due to the capital intensive nature of renewable energy solutions. Thank you, Diala. And in this regard, also the importance of innovative instruments uh, yeah, is becoming more obvious. Could you give some examples of some innovative instruments and how they can be applied, applied effectively and what in general Irina has studied about innovative instruments? Yeah, so I mean, we call them innovative instruments, but they are not so in innovative. I mean, they are just a blend of public money that will be used to attract private money. So when we talk about this, these blended financing schemes, we look at models or occasions where multilateral development bank has come together with other also, let's say, funds that together created, let's say, an environment that was perceived as less risky. So all those what we call them the risk mitigation instruments. Uh, so when we reduce the risks or whether uh, they are blended with, say, for example, subsidies that reduce the, the initial investment, uh, capital investments, then we call those blended finance. So the public support comes together with private money. And these are situations where we are able to attract private capital at, a, let's say, lower cost of finance than otherwise. Thank you for your overview of this and your examples were very interesting. 
I guess, innovative instruments, not so innovative, but very important in today's world and for achieving our climate goals. And returning to something that we have already started discussing and what you highlighted a couple of times on the importance of the collaboration, the importance of the international community playing a more significant role in supporting energy and climate finance. I know that the report mentions that Africa received only 2% of 2.8 trillion US dollars spent on renewables globally between 2000 and 2020. And again, this will be one of the topics of the upcoming COP28 uh, climate conference in the United Arab Emirates this year. So what are your views on this? And what are your expectations for from the conference as well? Will we see any breakthrough on this particular topic? Yes, so Africa is a very interesting case. It's a continent with a lot of resources, uh, whether natural resources uh, for renewable energy production, has a lot of uh, human resources, young population. So most of the elements are there for the development of a renewable energy sector. You have a lot of the critical minerals or uh, the products that we use to produce renewable energy equipment actually come from Africa. A lot of the, let's say, the ingredients of the recipe are present in Africa. There's just one element that is missing, that is the finance. And financing is, as we know, is the most important, not most important, because we cannot really make the cake without in the absence of any of the ingredients. But this is the most difficult one to overcome. As you have seen, 2% of the global investments, although it is the continent that is most in need of energy, right? This is where you have the highest percentage of people without access to electricity, without access to clean energy. And this is where we expect to see the highest or the, let's say, highest level of socioeconomic development and industrialization coming forward until 2050. So as we mentioned, a lot of the elements that are needed to attract private capital are until today not, not available in so many African countries, uh, whether it is for example, they can be hindered by, let's say, currency exchange risks or broader uh, country level risks. Or sometimes there are the risks that this electricity, even if it is provided, will not be needed. There's probably no demand because it's a chicken or egg situation. Do, do we provide the electricity before the uses of it are there or do we wait until the use is there to provide the electricity? So there's a lot of issues that are hindering private capital from moving to Africa. But as we mentioned, there are all those innovative solutions where a higher engagement of public investments and more blended mechanisms, more, more uh, multilateral development banks, bilateral development banks, or more support from the international community in general and climate finance is a very good opportunity can help bring a lot of investments and develop a sector that can create a lot of jobs and support the socioeconomic development of the continent. Of course, COP is a very good opportunity for such commitments to climate finance, uh, but we have seen a lot of commitments for climate finance made in the past that have unfortunately still not materialized yet on the ground. So although COP28 has a lot of, offers a lot of potential where we can see more countries stepping in and supporting developing world, including Africa, but not only Africa. 
we still need to see much more work being done on this international collaboration space and the climate finance needs to really start being dispersed and we need to move from just making promises to really seeing change on the ground and we are all looking forward to cop 28 i know that there are calls for rethinking the access of, to climate finance of course and Sticking up to promises for the countries that had already made these pledges to mobilize certain amounts of uh, money to direct them to developing countries. And um, as we wrap up our discussion, and given the urgency of the energy transition, what, from your point of view, are the key challenges that need to be addressed immediately? to accelerate progress towards our climate objectives. But also, I don't want to uh, finish on this negative note on challenges. What are the opportunities as well? Sure. I mean, the climate discussion and climate efforts offer a great opportunity that we should not miss. And it's an opportunity to rework the structures, the global structures, the global financial structures, the structures of industrialization, of trade, so this is, a, this is sort of our opportunity to uh, rethink how we can reduce inequalities in the world between the global north and the global south, but even within a country. So this climate, uh, these climate initiatives, of course, they, we are looking at them, one entry point can be climate, but they have many entry points. Another entry point can be socioeconomic development, right? So this is this is an opportunity to, to bring socioeconomic development to many economies, uh, including Africa. We mentioned Africa and its rich potential and how they, its potential can be leveraged to create industries, to develop industries for industrialization in a different way than we did things so far in the rest of the world. So this whole leapfrogging opportunity where we can build our cities differently, build our industries differently and do things a bit differently. And also perceive, as we mentioned, the perception of risks, but perceive the distribution of resources in a more equitable and equal way, right? Uh, I mean, this one, one little example is that this whole climate discussion and the renewable energy discussion, for example, we give a lot of importance to gender and to inclusivity. So this, this whole energy transition brings with it a very nice opportunity to redo things differently. So, but yes, as as you mentioned, I mean, it's not a, it's not a challenge in itself. It's it's I mean, the tools are there. We just need to take action. We just need to decide to take action and actually do it. It's that it's no longer a technological transition. The technology is there. It's proven. It works. The transition now has to be more of a structural trans transition, a socioeconomic transition. Whereas I mentioned, the political uh, drive needs to be there. The internet, it's a collaborative transition. The collaboration needs to be there. And then with it, we need to uh, drive structural change and rethinking the way we have been doing things in the past, let's say, century. This is an excellent note to finish our podcast on. Thank you so much, Diala, for sharing with us your thoughts, your insights, findings from your the ARENA report. And many thanks for you for listening uh, to our podcast. We hope this podcast has provided some valuable insights on this important topic. And let me remind you that you can subscribe to this and all other OMFIF podcasts on our channel on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.